in late October 1917, a radio broadcast announced that the Soviets had overthrown the Tsarist regime and the communists had formed a new government in Russia. This was the first ever instance of Karl Marx's political ideology acquiring an entire state for itself in the world's largest country. It was a spectacular victory of a bloody ideological revolution, an ideology in which violence and bloodshed were inseparable from the ideology itself. Expectedly, the event sent shockwaves across the world, shockwaves and joy. Joy among communist ideologues in non-communist countries. All of them now looked at their new big brother, the Soviet Union, for guidance, support, strength, training, and money. British-ruled colonial India was one such country where Karl Marx and communism were still merely in books. That would soon change. Hello and welcome to the Dharma Podcasts. In this episode, we try to sketch the brief history of communism in India over almost a century, that is roughly from 1920 onwards to the present time, that is 2020. The story of communism in India really begins with a young man named Narendranath Bhattacharya, alias Manabendranath Roy, more commonly known as M.N. Roy, widely regarded as the father and founder of communism in India. As a young man, M.N. Roy, in his efforts to raise funding for an armed revolt against the colonial British, travelled to Indonesia, or Java as it was called back then, and then to Japan, and finally landed in San Francisco. After spending some time in San Francisco, M.N. Roy travelled to New York, where he began reading Karl Marx, and soon became a thoroughly converted and die-hard communist. Next, M.N. Roy fled to Mexico with generous funding from the German military. In Mexico, he began spreading communist ideas and, uh, if it can be called philosophy, he began to spread that in Mexico and charmed its political elite, including the president Carranza himself. M.N. Roy also founded the Communist Party of Mexico, the only communist party in the world at that time outside the new Soviet Republic in Russia. Roy quickly attracted the attention of Vladimir Lenin himself by his constant writings, his speeches and uh, various editorials and columns that upheld and propagated the ideas of Karl Marx. So, as a result, uh, a thoroughly impressed uh, Lenin quickly invited uh, M.N. Roy to the Second World Congress of the Communist International or Com Intern. The Communist International was a world body of communist thinkers, leaders, ideologues, activists and so on. Lenin personally met M.N. Roy in Russia 
and soon hired him to spread communist propaganda in India. The goal was a total communist revolution in India as part of Lenin's Eastern Communist Policy. That really set things in motion. In October 1920, M. N. Roy founded the Communist Party of India in Tashkent, the same city where former Prime Minister Lal Bahadur Shastri died under mysterious circumstances. In its original form, Roy envisioned the Communist Party of India as a military outfit as well as a political outfit and therefore founded both military and political schools in order to recruit ideologues and activists to help the upcoming Grand Communist Revolution in India. The Communist Party of India in its present avatar says that it was officially founded on 26th December 1925 in Kanpur. These arguments aren't really important now, but what is really important is the legacy and the long role played by the communists in India for nearly a century. From its founding in 1920 onwards till today, the communists have shared a common theme. They have acted as agents of foreign powers. They have constantly worked against the Hindu civilization, the Indian nation and state. In the initial years and up to the fall of the USSR, Indian communists repeatedly visited Russia to receive ideological training. They took money from Moscow to organize unprovoked violence on a mass scale on Indian soil. Till date, Indian communists have murdered lakhs of innocent Indians. Over 70 years, Indian communists have blocked India's economic growth using a variety of tactics, including but not limited to forced strikes, bands, hartals, lockouts, protests, and violent agitations on the ground. Street violence continues to be one of their major weapons and tactics to frighten the Indian state. Indian communists actively colluded with the colonial British to subvert and sabotage the Indian freedom struggle. A little known fact today is this. It was the communists who collaborated with the Muslim League and gave them both religious and ideological backing to demand the partition of India. The communists played a major role in creating the Islamic Republic of Pakistan. Let's look at a few prominent leaders such as obviously the founder M. N. Roy, then we have P. C. Joshi, S. A. Dange, Gangadhar Adhikari and E. M. S. Nambudari Pad. All these leaders were directly and indirectly involved in blowing up bridges, railway tracks, bombing and burning down entire villages, helping the Razakars in their genocide of Hindus in Andhra Pradesh and uh, parts of North Karnataka. Now let's look at a few major episodes from the pre-independence era that illustrate exactly how dangerous the communists were and are to the unity and sovereign integrity of India. In 1942, Gangadhar Adhikari, the General Secretary of the Communist Party of India wrote a pamphlet which said 
that India had to be broken into separate countries such as the Lingayat country, the Marathi country, the Tamil country, the Baloch country, the Sindh country, the Punjab country, the Telugu country, the Malayala country. And this came to be known as the infamous Adhikari thesis and it was written ostensibly to make the case for a separate Muslim country of Pakistan premised exclusively on a separate Muslim identity. So Adhikari's reasoning, which was also the reasoning of the communists, was as follows. Why just stop at demanding Pakistan? Split India into as many countries as possible and give it to whoever wants it. Ever since it was founded, the Communist Party of India regarded the unity of India as its greatest hurdle. To be more specific, the Communists continue to regard the fundamental cultural unity of India as their greatest obstacle in achieving a total communist revolution in the country. In fact, the Communists are the original breaking India forces, a term that has become quite popular over the last decade. In their own words, the Indian independence in 1947 was a loss of revolution. Now we can quickly look at some major episodes after India attained independence. The first thing that the communists discovered after independence was that India's first Prime Minister, Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru, was a great tool that they could use very effectively. Nehru was a blind devotee of Stalin and perhaps his greatest devotee on earth. Nehru's fascination for the USSR made it really easy for the Indian communists to take enormous funding from USSR to spread communist propaganda on Indian soil and most of this money was illegally funneled into India, a fact that Nehru knew and turned a blind eye to. So the more the communists criticized and abused Nehru and abused him repeatedly in public, the more he appeased them. Let's fast forward now to Indira Gandhi, who made a deal with the communists to come to power after splitting the original Indian National Congress party. The story is well known and so uh, it's superfluous to repeat it in this episode. As Prime Minister, Indira Gandhi surrounded herself with hardcore communists at all levels. Her Prime Minister's office or PMO was filled with USSR agents like P.N. Huskar and D.P. Dhar to name two prominent figures. And it was in her regime that the top rungs of the Indian bureaucracy were infiltrated by the communists. This, in communist terminology, this infiltration was known as bringing in revolution from the top. But the greatest damage occurred in April 1969, which was when Indira Gandhi gifted more than 1,000 acres of land in the heart of Delhi to the communists. This was the founding of the infamous Jawaharlal Nehru University, or JNU, the Mecca of Indian communists and the intellectual Kremlin on the Yamuna. Over the next three or four decades, the communists created a deep and 
wide and extensive nexus of far-left academics, writers, intellectuals, journalists, editors and columnists. This is really the short story of how Indian communists systematically infiltrated all public institutions. Nothing was immune or out of the reach of their takeover. Education, bureaucracy, media and much later even the judiciary. This communist takeover was also backed by a powerful global network of political, ideological and religious players, the evangelical church lobby, Islamic petrodollars, the NGO and human rights industry and generous funding from Pakistan intelligence. The universities were special targets and breeding grounds for spreading communist ideology. Almost unlimited funding was given to faculty and students by doling out generous scholarships, fellowships, patronage of all sorts in prestigious universities in the United States. Three main institutions in the U.S. played a major role in this. The first is the University of Chicago, then the University of California, UC Berkeley, and the Columbia School of Journalism, which produced a lot of celebrity TV anchors and editors that we see today. A major goal of this combined lobby, of this global nexus, is to continuously produce books, papers, research reports, literature, documentaries, and films focused on a single theme, a relentless, vicious, and sustained demonization of Hinduism, its traditions, its social structures, its customs, its festivals, and so on. What's the purpose behind this constant demonization, and what can be achieved by this? The answer, a lot of things. First, the Hindu society can be kept in a state of constant conflict, a slow burn. As a result, social disharmony occurs, non-existent fault lines grow wider and deeper and more intense. In turn, this hampers economic progress to put it mildly. And social disharmony also creates identity crisis and identity crisis in turn erodes cultural self-confidence and a loss of cultural self-confidence means that India and specifically Hindu society becomes vulnerable for conversions to predatory faiths like Christianity and Islam. This is a phenomenon that is occurring in front of our own eyes even as we speak. And this communist project went on almost without any serious challenge until 1989. A historic year. That was when the communists received massive shocks in rapid succession. The Berlin Wall fell. As a result, the entire communist bloc of Eastern Europe completely came apart. Then came the mother of all blows. The total collapse of the Soviet Union, their only fatherland. And in India, Prime Minister Rajiv Gandhi's government tasted a humiliating defeat in 1989 elections and has never recovered from it. Meanwhile, a historical cultural upsurge, a sweeping national movement 
had also occurred as a parallel development. This was the grand reawakening of the Hindu consciousness which reunited the entire Hindu society despite five decades of communists relentlessly trying to break it from within. And a peak in this movement was reached when the Babri Masjid was destroyed. The Babri Masjid was one of the biggest symbols of communist ideology in India. By the mid-1990s, the communists realized that they could never capture political power at the center through free and fair elections and form an independent communist government all on their own strength. So what did they do? The answer, they simply rebranded themselves. They began wearing new clothes. They stopped calling themselves as progressives, Marxists and communists. Over the next decade and a half, they became left liberals, liberals, peace activists, human rights workers, feminist ideologues, civil society members, LGBTQ activists, social justice warriors. The labels just keep multiplying. Now cut to the 2004 general elections in India. This was a real watershed moment for Indian communists. Now they got a massive 60 seats in the Indian parliament beyond even their own wildest imaginations. It was pure electoral gold. The communists were now truly ready to take their game to the next level. The Breaking India roots that they had planted about 70 years ago had now grown into a gigantic tree hiding in plain sight. The infrastructure, the media, academia, intelligentsia, the bureaucracy were now at their command. Let's explore this point in a little more detail. In the 2004 elections, the Indian National Congress Party had got only 147 seats. That was roughly 10 seats more than what the Bharatiya Janata Party had got. It was desperate for support to form a coalition government and capture power again. And this was when the communists gave them outside support as strategy. The arrangement was disproportionately beneficial to the communists. One, they got power without participation. Two, they got an open field to push their agenda without accountability. And three, they got an opportunity to blackmail the government without any consequences. Now it was time for execution using the entire might of the government machinery to subvert the Indian state. It was now time to break India from the inside. In 2004, the Congress party boss Sonia Gandhi set up something called the National Advisory Council or the NAC. This was the first step. The NAC was a completely extra-constitutional body accountable to none not even the Prime Minister of India. Almost all members of the NAC were committed to the extreme left ideology and some even had direct links to Maoist terrorist outfits. These open links were known to the top leadership of the Congress party. And here are the names of some prominent NAC members of that time. Aruna Roy, Anu Agha, Jean Driz, M.S. Swaminathan 
and the most dangerous of them all, Harsh Mandar. Now, let's quickly rewind and look at some of the major events that occurred between 2004 and 2014. In 2006, the Hindu kingdom of Nepal was destroyed and replaced by a communist government. Its most powerful ideologue, Baburam Bhattarai, is an alumnus of the Jawaharlal Nehru University. In 2007, Maoist terror exploded on a grand scale. It was now active in 203 districts in 14 states across India. In 2008, the annual income of Maoist terrorists jumped to a massive 12,000 crore rupees, that is roughly around 2 billion US dollars. Next, we can look at some major legislations passed between 2004 and 2014. In 2005, the Mahatma Gandhi National Rural Employment Guarantee Act, or the Mandrega, was passed. In 2009, the Deadly Right to Education Act was passed. We are still suffering its consequences. In 2010, the National Green Tribunal or the NGT was passed. The main goal or purpose or intent of the NGT is to act as a powerful lobby within the government to block various infrastructure projects giving the excuse of environmental protection. In 2011, a draft of the communal violence bill was introduced and quickly aborted following massive public outreach. And in 2013, the food security bill was passed. Each of these major legislations is drowned in the far left or hardcore communist ideology and modeled on similar laws which eventually bankrupted Venezuela, whose citizens now drink sewage water after barely purifying it. Next, and this is truly deadly, from 2004 to 2014, more than 7 lakh foreign-funded NGOs were operating in India. Just think about it. 7 lakh plus NGOs receiving foreign money, not in terms of lakhs of rupees, but in terms of crores of rupees. The head of some of these NGOs were part of Sonia Gandhi's National Advisory Council. Think about that. And what were their goals, intent and purpose? Social service, poverty alleviation, providing education to the downtrodden. The answer is both yes and no. These were the publicly declared goals, but here are the real goals. Goal number one, converting Hindus to Christianity on an industrial scale. Goal number two, blocking India's economic development through violent agitations against dams and other infrastructure projects. Goal number three, sustained and relentless legal and judicial lobbying against Hindu festivals, customs, traditions, and institutions. Public interest litigations were filed to target major Hindu festivals like Holi, Dahi Handi, Deepavali, Jali Kattu, and so on. The list of this sort of all-round damage against every single facet of Hinduism is almost endless. The reality is that from 2004 to 2014, 
the topmost layers of the government and all our institutions were tightly in the grip of breaking India forces. In other words, breaking India forces had successfully taken over the Congress party. These forces also ensured that their tight grip would remain intact even in case the Congress lost the elections in 2014 and that's exactly what happened. The Congress party was bombed out of power and was reduced to a paltry 44 seats in the Lok Sabha. When Narendra Modi became the new Prime Minister, the details of this historic event are well known. And so, unable to touch Narendra Modi politically, the Congress party, and now the Congress party can legitimately be called the Communist Congress Party of India. It began indulging in open subversion and its 70-year-long institutional capture really paid off. Now these proxy forces within the institutions began fighting the political battles of the Congress party. More than 80% of the top bureaucracy are firmly rooted in the far-left ideology and some are even openly hostile to Hindus. Almost immediately after the 2014 washout, there was nearly an explosion of extreme left digital media portals. Here are some names. Scroll.in headed by Naresh Fernandez which received generous funding from Pierre Omdiar. The Wire.in headed by the Maoist ideologue Siddharth Vardarajan. The Print headed by Shekhar Gupta which promotes a softer version of communist ideology. The Quint headed by Raghav Behel, which promotes a similar ideology, and the other far-left and fake news outlet, Alt News, headed by Pratik Sinha. All of these portals are dedicated to a single goal, a constant, vicious and sustained propaganda, attack and abuse of Prime Minister Modi, Home Minister Amit Shah, the BJP, the RSS, the VHP, and various other Hindu organizations and individual Hindu activists. The, the underlying theme of all these outlets is also to divide and weaken the Hindus. This is the same, the original template which had worked so well for the communists, mainly under Indira Gandhi's state patronage for more than two decades. And now, while these forces are politically powerless, it would be a really big mistake to think that they will stop. Quite the contrary. They will only increase the pitch, the intensity and the viciousness of the attacks. And as we are witnessing since the outbreak of the Chinese coronavirus, it is the left liberals who are openly provocating street thugs and dangerous Islamic ideologues like the Tablighi Jamaatis. There is another fundamental reason behind such dangerous behavior from these far-left ideologues and portals. The goal of the communists, whatever they might now call themselves, liberals and the rest, whatever might be their labels, their vision and goal is not merely winning elections and political battles. It is a civilizational goal of completely dismantling the Hindu civilization, culture and society and replacing it with the communist dictatorships like the one existing in China now. 
and they have already succeeded on a breathtaking scale. Deepavali is not the same anymore. Holi is not celebrated with the same fervor any longer. And Shabrimala has received a serious damage. Innumerable local Hindu customs are on the verge of total extinction. The Hindu society is fighting against itself. And the communists have done all this in less than a century. This is the real history of communism in India. We hope you enjoyed this podcast episode. To listen to more such episodes, please subscribe to the Dharma podcast on your favorite podcast player. Like and share our episodes. Thank you and see you in the next podcast episode.